When I graduated from high school, I went straight to college. Uh, following fall, I was a freshman at Auburn University, and I went to college with a very strange idea. Somehow, I became convinced that I was going to college, and college was going to be easier than high school. Now, if you've experienced any level of higher education, you know that that's absolutely not true, and I discovered that on my very first day of school. It was my first day of college. I woke up and I packed a backpack full of school supplies that I didn't really know I wouldn't need. And I walked across campus and I went to the math building. My very first class was Calculus One. Now at Auburn University, the math department was a little bit different. They gave you on your schedule the time of your class, the date of your class, but they didn't tell you your professor. I think they were afraid you would find out that you had a really hard teacher and you would swap out of that class. So they left the teacher off of your schedule. So I took my backpack, I walked across campus, and I walked up the stairs into the first classroom on the left and sat down and waited for college to begin. I got there a few minutes early, so there was no one in the room, and I got the perfect seat three-quarters of the way through the back of the class. It wasn't on the back because you don't want to be that student, and it wasn't in the front because that's just weird. So I sat down, and I waited for college to start. A few minutes rolled by, and the time for the class rolled around. When it came time for the class to start, the door at the front of the room blasted open like no one had even touched it. And in walked this man who had this chiseled old face, and he looked like he was eight feet tall, and he was skinny as a rail. And he walked in the room, and he was carrying only his math book. He didn't have any notes. He didn't have an outline that he was going to follow for his lecture. He was simply carrying his textbook. And he walked straight to this table that was in the front of the room. And he looked at all of us without saying a word. And he dropped his book on the table. And then without saying another word, he took off his glasses. And he lined them up perfectly next to the textbook. He stuck his hand in his right pocket. And he pulled out two blue big pens. He proceeded to line them up perfectly straight with his glasses. Now I remember this like it was yesterday. Because I would soon discover this would be a daily occurrence. He did this at the beginning of every class. He reached back into his pocket and he pulled out three brand new pieces of chalk. He lined them up perfectly straight with the pens and his glasses. And then without saying a word, he put his glasses back on his face. And he opened up his textbook. And that's when I saw the kitchen glove. I watched this man. Remember, this is my first college experience. This is my very first class. I've never been in college before. And I watched this professor take out a kitchen glove, put it on his right hand. Then he picks up one of his brand new pieces of chalk. He puts his hand on his hip and he spins around and begins teaching us calculus. Now, you can imagine, I'm sitting in my perfect seat three quarters of the way through the back of the class thinking, what in the world is going on? Remember, I came into college thinking it was going to be easier than high school, and I'm sitting here watching a man with a kitchen glove on his hand write equations on the chalkboard, and I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I have no idea what's going on. And what's interesting is that that feeling never really left me. See, I was an engineering student, so my Calculus One class was just the beginning of my journey through the world of mathematics. I would go from Calculus One to Calculus Two, on to Cal Three. I took differential equations and linear algebra, and all along the way, I had that feeling, I don't really know what's going on. 
I had these friends that walked through engineering with me, and they all felt the exact same way. It was like the more we learned, it felt like the less we really knew. The deeper we went into these subjects, the, the greater depths to which we went into this discipline, the more it felt like we really didn't know all that much. And what I think was happening is we were experiencing exactly what our teachers wanted us to experience. We were experiencing this, that the deeper you go, the less you know. That's what we felt over and over and over again. The deeper you go, the less you know. Because it was like the deeper we went into these ideas, the more we were really able to lift up our head and look around and realize how much more there was out there that we didn't know. The deeper we went, the more we were able to lift our heads and look around and realize how much more there was to learn. And I think our professors were trying to do that. Because college, you know, you think they're trying to teach you how to do a particular job and give you a degree so that you can go and do that job. But it's really more about them trying to inspire a lifelong passion for learning. And the way they did that was exposing us over and over and over again to the idea that the deeper you go, the less you know. Because when you feel that emotion, that's what inspires you to turn back around and learn more. That's what inspires you to study. That's what inspires you to work hard, is realizing that you've gone to such great depths, but there's so much more out there that you can get your arms around. And what's interesting is that we see this exact same concept in Scripture. If you read the Bible, you see that idea that the deeper you go, the less you know over and over and over again. I think the best illustration of this concept in Scripture is the book of Romans. The book of Romans is really a letter that Paul wrote to some people who were living in Rome. And in the first half of the book of Romans, Paul really gives his best shot at explaining God. He talks about us, he talks about God, he talks about the relationship between God and man, and he takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into the things of God. And all the while, you feel the same thing. The deeper you go, it feels like the less you really know. Now, if you were to open your Bibles and just read through the book of Romans, it would feel a little bit like this. You would start in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about us. He talks about humanity, and he talks about how we are sinful people. But it's not simply that we make mistakes, or it's not simply that we kind of have some issues, but that at the very core of our being, we have a sinful heart, that our heart is turned in on itself and selfishly seeks its own desires, that that's who we are, and that's all we're about, and that what that ends up in is disobedience to God over and over again, that that's the human story, that we want what we want, and we will disobey God to get it. That's who we are. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1, and then in Romans chapter 2, he talks about God's response to that. He talks about how God is angry with that. God sees his people disobeying, and he's not happy about it. But it's not simply that God is just mad at his people for disobeying him, but it's that God is right to feel that way. Paul talks in Romans chapter 2 about how God has a just judgment for our sin. Because God is perfect, he's the only one who can watch us disobey and say, that is wrong. In Romans chapter 1, God talks about our sin. In Romans chapter 2, he talks about God's just judgment on that sin. But it's in Romans chapter 3 that Paul talks about Jesus. 
And he talks about how God is angry with our sin, but Jesus is the one who steps in the middle between us and God, who accepts that anger, who accepts that wrath, who takes on our punishment so that we can go free. Paul says that by calling Jesus, this really long word, our propitiation. Paul takes you a little bit deeper into the story of Jesus as he calls Jesus our propitiation, meaning that he is this one who stands in between and takes on our punishment, takes on the wrath of God so that we can go free. But that word goes a little bit deeper than that. It's not simply that Jesus is a shield that protects us from the anger of God. But what the word propitiation means is that Jesus was a sacrifice. Not only that protects us from God's wrath, but a sacrifice that changes the wrath of God into favor. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God looks on us with favor. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 4, you discover that he's really writing this letter to Jewish people. Because he goes all the way back to Abraham. And he talks about Abraham's faith. And he says, because Abraham had faith in God, it gave him peace with God. He talks about that in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 5, he talks about us. He says, in the same way that, Rome, uh, that Abraham had faith in God and gave him peace with God, we have faith in Christ, and that gives us peace with God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about slavery. He goes back to chapter 1, not just saying that we have a sinful heart, but that we were enslaved to sin, which leads to death. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are now enslaved to God. We are enslaved to obedience, which leads to life. In Romans chapter 7, Paul takes you a little bit deeper, and he talks about the law. He says we're no longer under the law of ourselves, under the law of sin, but we are under the law of God. And then at the very end of Romans chapter 7, Paul writes probably the most relatable thing in all of Scripture. He says this. He's talked about who we are. He's talked about how God sacrificed his son Jesus, how we've been brought back into the family of God. And then he says this. He says, every time I want to do right, it feels like evil lies close at hand. When Paul actually talks about living out the, the life of faith in Jesus Christ, he says, every time I want to do what's right, it feels like the wrong choice is laying right there for the taking. And everyone who's tried to be a Christian can relate to that. Paul writes that most relatable thing at the end of chapter 7, and he rolls right into Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's at that point that you have to stop for a second and think about how far Paul has brought us. All the way from Romans chapter 1, where our sinful hearts are turned in on themselves, all the way to Romans chapter 8, where we're no longer disobedient, sinful people, but there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. You think about how far he's brought us. And really, you think about how deep he's taking us. That we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God. We're going deeper and deeper into the history of our salvation. Paul is taking us deeper and deeper into the mysteries of God. If you were to keep reading Romans, Paul is about to take that depth a step further. In Romans chapter 9, things get a little confusing. Paul starts, talk, starts talking about the sovereignty of God. And he says this phrase that God would look at the two kind of sons of the promise, Jacob and Esau, and say, Jacob I hated, I mean, sorry, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Paul quotes this verse from the Old Testament, and you read that, 
and you think, that doesn't really sound like God. And you start to understand that Paul is taking you deep into something that you don't fully understand. As Paul talks about the sovereignty of God in those verses in Romans chapter 9, you try to put that together with Romans chapter 10, which would say that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you try to fit those things together and you realize that Paul has taken you to a depth into something that you can't fully comprehend. He's taken you deeper. And the deeper you go, it feels like the less you really know. He talks about that in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 11, you remember that he's writing this book to Jewish people. Because in Romans chapter 11, Paul really kind of blows open the doors of their minds when he starts to talk about the Gentiles. Now, for a first century Jewish person, the Gentiles were all the other nations that God had not established his promise with. For a Jewish person, they knew and they grew up understanding that God had given them a special relationship. He'd given them a promise that they would be with him. And all the other nations were unclean, disobedient people who wasted their time building idols to other gods. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul takes the Jewish people deep into the idea that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God is able to welcome even them into the family of God. And Paul takes you deeper and deeper and deeper into an understanding of the history of our salvation. And for a first century Jewish person to read that was the equivalent of them sitting three quarters of the way through the back of the room, watching a man with a kitchen glove write equations on a chalkboard. They had no idea what was going on. They were amazed that Paul would say that God would welcome the unclean nations into the family of God. And if you read Romans chapter 11, it's almost like the pace picks up. Paul's pen seems to move a little faster as he's taking these Jewish people and he's taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into the story of God. He starts at the beginning of Romans chapter 11 talking about that fact, and it's like the words just bulldoze all the way through the chapter until you get to verse 33. And as you've read Romans all the way from Romans chapter 1 to 2 and 3 through 4, 5, and 6, on through 7 and 8, you got really confused in Romans chapter 9, you read 10 and 11, and you get all the way down to Romans chapter 11 verse 33, and it's like the pen of Paul stops for a second. It's like Paul's writing furiously as fast as he can, and then he just stops. It's like the pen has to stop. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul writes one simple phrase. In the original Greek language, it's really one simple letter. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Omega. Paul simply writes, oh. It's like after all of this explanation, Paul simply writes, oh. When he's gone to such great depths into the person of God, into the history of salvation and the story of God's relationship with us, he stops and he simply writes, oh. And he says this, this is Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, 
the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now I remember a moment in my calculus class when I really just, I got lost. We had a test coming up and there was a particular type of problem that I didn't know how to do. So I went up to my teacher after class and we struggled through his accent to set up an appointment. And a few days later, I woke up from a nap in my dorm room and I walked across campus to Parker Hall, the old math building. And I walked in the door and up the stairs and I went down the hallway to the right to his office. The office of Dr. Olav Kallenberg. And as I was about to knock on his door, I noticed that there was something hanging on his door. It was a single sheet of paper. And it was a sheet of music. There were no numbers. There were no equations. But it was simply music. I knocked on his door and he said, come in. And I went into his office and it looked like any old professor's office. There were glass-covered bookcases and coffee cups and an old computer and there were papers everywhere. And he told me to sit down and I explained my problem and he started moving papers around looking for a blank sheet to write the answer to my problem on. And I noticed that there were sheets of music everywhere. And it took me back to the very first day of class. The first time I saw the glasses and the pieces of chalk and the kitchen glove. Because when you experience something like that on your first day of college, you do what anyone would do. You run back to your dorm and you get on the internet and you try to figure out who in the world this guy is. So I went home and I searched him on the internet and I found an article that talked about who he was. There was a section that talked about his educational things, all about all the degrees he had and the books that he'd written. There was a section that talked about his family. Talked about his wife and his children. And then there was a section that talked about his hobbies. And that was where I learned that he loved to downhill ski. But I learned that he loved classical music and playing the piano. And that's when I realized that this guy was experiencing something. That he had gone so deep into the world of mathematics, that he'd gone so far into the world of probability and statistics that he hit a wall. And then when he hit that wall, because of the great depths to which he had gone, there was only one thing that was going to break through that for him. It was music. The only way he was going to get through that wall was for him to sit down at the 88 keys of a piano and play it out. That this guy was experiencing a moment where his math was becoming music and his numbers were becoming notes. That this guy was experiencing worship. That his music was a result of the great depths to which he had gone in the world of math. He was experiencing this, that the deeper you go, the less you know. But the less you know, 
the more you worship. That is what you see in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. After you've walked all the way through the first 11 chapters of Romans, you're watching Paul go deeper and deeper and deeper into the story of God. You're watching him go deeper and deeper into the history of salvation and the person of Christ. And you get all the way through Romans chapter 11 and then Paul hits a wall. He's got to stop for a second. He's got to put the pen down. He's got to take a breath. And then what happens next is worship. When Paul has that omega moment, when he writes, oh, what happens next is worship. Paul is experiencing exactly what my professor was experiencing. That the deeper you go, the less you know. But the less you know, the more you worship. Now, if you read the New Testament, you discover that that's kind of the guy Paul was. He was a pretty musical guy. If you remember the story of Paul and Silas, they're in prison, and in Paul's kind of darkest moment right there, you find him singing. And Paul and Silas kind of literally sing their way out of prison. If you read the book of Philippians, you read in chapter 2 this beautiful hymn that Paul writes about Jesus coming from the heights of heaven down to the level of man, even to the point of death. Paul, this guy who's writing Romans chapter 11, is the same guy who would write 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, where you discover that Paul had a left brain and a right brain, where he says, I will sing praises with my mind, but I will also sing praises with my spirit. That for Paul, there was this connection between his head and his heart. That for Paul, all of Romans chapter 1 through 11 is leading straight up to this moment in verse 33. That the reason that he's taken you to such depths, even to the point of, I don't quite get it, the reason he's doing that is to get you to verse 33, where you hit a wall, and the only thing that's going to break through is worship. And Paul starts his song with this little hook. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That Paul starts his song simply by saying, Oh, the depths of our God. How great and how big is our God that we will never reach the end of him. And that's the emotion you've been feeling all the way through Romans. The deeper you go, the less you know. The deeper you go into the story of God, the more you're able to kind of lift up your head and realize how much more there is to him. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. At the end of this verse, you can kind of feel the rhythm where Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You see the pattern back and forth. Paul simply says that God's judgments are unsearchable. That we will never search out the ends of God's judgments. We will never be able to put our finger on God and know always exactly why. God's judgments are unsearchable. And he says at the end that his ways are inscrutable. I love this word. Somebody told me once that the the word inscrutable simply means unfigureoutable. That our God is unfigureoutable. 
that we will never figure him out. We will never find the end of him. We will never be able to predict his movements. His ways are inscrutable. Paul starts his chorus like this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? He's kind of baiting us a little bit. He says, who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? See, because you read those three things, and we've all tried that before, haven't we? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has felt like you know what God's going to do next? Or at least you know what he should do next. He then says, or who has been his counselor? I struggle with this. Saying, hey God, I know that you see everything that's going on here, but let me tell you what should happen next. Let me tell you what I need you to do. Let me tell you how you need to work this out. Let me show you how I've worked all the pieces out in my plan. I think I should be an advisor to God. Or he ends with, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We all do this. Spending our lives constructing the best gift we can come up with to present to God and say, look, Lord, here, I'm repaying you for all the kindness you've given me. I'm Working so hard for you. I'm volunteering so many hours. I'm teaching so many classes. I'm writing so many checks. I'm boarding so many planes. I'm doing so many Bible studies. God, look at this great gift that I have constructed so that I can repay you for the kindness you've shown me. And Paul says, no one can create a gift that could repay God even a little bit. And what Paul is pushing us towards is a moment where we lay all those things down and the pen stops and we simply breathe out, oh. Where we might have that omega moment where we have to stop and simply worship. Paul ends his song with a solo that it's all about one thing. And he says, for from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul ends his worship moment by centering your eyes on God. That every single thing begins, is sustained, and ends with our God. For by him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. That Paul has walked you straight through a moment where you experience the fact that the deeper you go, the less it feels like you really know. But the less you know, the more you worship. Do we ever experience that? Does that omega moment ever actually happen? Where there's a moment where you have to put the pen down and stop filling in blanks on our God. You have to close the Bible study and put it on the shelf for a second because you need to worship. Is there ever a moment where you've been to too many classes? 
where you've thought about what God has done for us in sacrificing his son Jesus Christ and you have to stop because you need to worship. Has there ever been a moment where you're driving in a car and you think you rehearse the truth of the gospel in your mind and you got to pull over for a second because you need to worship. Has there ever been a moment where you're teaching somebody else and these words are coming out of your mouth but you have to stop for a minute Because you realize what you're talking about. That God himself sacrificed his son because he loves you. That God died for us because we needed it. And you hear those words and your voice catches a little. Because you've got to worship. Have you ever stopped writing checks or read too much of the Bible? or spent a little too much time in church when you need to stop and remember how amazing it is that God loves you. Because the deeper you go, the less you really know. But the less you know, the more you worship Now today is kind of a special day. We have a group of people that wore their costumes to church. And before we finish up, I I just, if you guys could help me with this, I need just a quick moment with them. You guys are more than welcome to listen in, um, but I need to talk to you guys for a second. You guys are about to leave a phase of life where people are kind of holding your hands. And they've been hurting you and shepherding you towards where they want you to go. And you're entering a phase of life where it's, it's yours and it's your own. And the truth is that everybody in here is worried about you. They are scared. They are worried that you are going to make choices that are going to lead your life down a path you don't want to go. They're worried that you're going to get dragged off into drugs or alcohol is going to take over your life. They're worried you're going to end up pregnant or you're going to end up in jail. You're going to make all these choices and everything's going to fall apart. That's what they're worried about. But I want you to hear me say something. That's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about for you is the exact same thing I've been worried about for the last four years that I've known you. I'm worried that there might come a day where you get over Jesus Christ. That you might hear the truth of the gospel. That God sacrificed himself for you. And you might just keep on turning the page and reading further. That's my greatest fear. What I want you to pursue more than anything it's not staying in church. It's not making right choices. I want you to pursue being amazed by Jesus Christ. I want you to pursue the Omega moment from Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where Paul has to stop. I mean, he's writing scripture, and he has to stop and say, oh, the depths of our God. That is is the only thing that is going to keep you engaged with the person of Jesus Christ. You can find the oldest person in this room who is still following Jesus, and that is what they will tell you, that they are amazed at how God loves them.
That is what you need to pursue. When you step foot on your campus or your new job or your next phase of life, you need to find people that will pour that into you. Not just people that will teach you more about God. Not just people that will run you through a few more Bible studies. You need to find people that are amazed at what Christ has done and sit with them. Let them pour that into you. And that is what you need to be pouring into other people. You may say, well, I'm just a freshman. I'm stepping in front of my campus. I don't know anybody. There's nobody younger than me. It might be somebody older than you. It might be somebody the same age as you. It might be a high school student at the church you end up in. It might be anything. But that is what you need to pour into them. Wonder and awe at what Christ has done. Because the deeper you go, the less you really know. But the less you know, the more you worship. You see, my biggest worry for a high school student is my biggest fear for myself. My biggest worry for them is my biggest worry for all of us. That we would listen to the truth of the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And shrug our shoulders and keep walking. That we would cease to be amazed at what God has done for us. That we would stop experiencing the omega moment where the pen stops and the actions stop and the doing stops for a moment because we've hit a wall. We've talked about God. We've learned about God. We've seen God work to a point where we need to worship him and we simply have no other words other than, oh, the depths of our God. Because it's when we explore those depths and we come up for air and we realize how much more there is to learn that we are inspired to dive back in deeper. And the deeper and the deeper we go, the less we know. But the less we know, the more we worship. Father God, Give us that. Build in us a heart that can't get over you. Fill us with wonder. Fill us with awe. God, intrigue us forever. Do not let our eyes wander from the amazing moment where Christ died for us. That he stands taking on the anger and wrath of God so that we might have the favor of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. How inscrutable are his judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God, for from you, through you, and to you are all things. And to you be glory 
forever. Amen.